Well, welcome. I think it's past eight, according to that clock. 8.03. Three less minutes I have to fill. All the pressure's off now. Yeah, do you mind? I, we'll see if anyone else can. So yeah, my name is Michael Chafin. Um, I'm the preaching minister at the Tempe Church of Christ. And as the recording will show, I just love that church and where I'm from. So the, it's, it's a special church. Um, it's been in Tempe for over 90 years. And about maybe a decade ago now, it was before I, I got there. I've been there about four and a half. Um, the, the church went through this kind of discernment period with the leadership and said, um, do we still need to be here? Like, does, does God still want us to be here? Is it, is it a better service to the kingdom? We have this beautiful property near ASU. Uh, is it better service to the kingdom to sell this to another Christian group? So there's a lot of questions. And the short version of that is they felt like God's response to their questions is you do still need to be here. I have work for you still to do. Um, but you need to take the next step. You're gonna, you're gonna, it's not going to be what you've been. You're going to be something new. So that's been um, campus ministry uh, coming back. We, they've done campus ministry up and on all their existence, but the, that got brought back with uh, my friend Hannah Parmalee. Some of you may know Hannah. Um, and Claire Allensworth, who's here. And so just, uh, it's just a blessing to be there, and I won't say too much more about that because I'll end up talking the whole time about them. But I just love this church, and they love me really well, and so that's a great place to find yourself. Um, and we just, yeah, we're, we're pretty open with each other. We, we, we try to have congregational conversations where we try to talk about harder things and say, what, where do you think? What, do you, what are you at? Uh, it's just great. A lot of spiritual formation focus. Um, yeah. My teaching style is very conversational. So I enjoy preaching. I love crafting a sermon. I love the delivery when it's done. Like, crafting is hard. It's always like, anyway. But that, I'm very conversational in my style, and so I, I like rooms like this where we can talk to each other, so I'm going to try to give room for you to speak. Um, and I'm also very pastoral. I'm not very prophetic. Um, this is a more prophetic type of lesson, I feel like, so we'll just see how that goes. So I'm going to say things that are more conclusions than arguments, but I hope that you won't assume that there aren't arguments behind them, and maybe we'll have time to talk also. Um, so there was a lot of thought that went into this, and if I say something, you're like, ah, heresy. It may be, but it's thoughtful heresy. Um, so that's just a little disclaimer as we get started. I usually, and I don't know you really, so it's like, if I know an audience, I can kind of, I think this is how they'll hear this, you know, I can craft it. All I can do in this setting is pray and trust that God will do something good. And I do trust that God will do something good here. Um, to the level that we're open to that goodness, and, and beyond, he does more, but uh, we have to participate, so it's just a little bit about me. Uh, my wife, Emily, is not feeling great today. She was going to actually sing a song for this. That was going to be the highlight of it, I think, Aww. and uh, so she's not going to do that. I don't think I'm going to try to sing this song. She, she plays guitar and sings really beautifully. I don't do either, uh, but I may read it. I'll, I'll probably read you the lyrics. So this theme, God loves forever, it just invites a lot of questions for me. It's a pretty bold statement, and I, as a person who grew up in church, I don't know if I always appreciate how bold a statement God loves forever is. Um, so a lot just starts tumbling out of that for me. Um, this is a deeply personal topic for me, uh, and we're going to start with the counter-narrative. So we have this Christian hope, this Judeo-Christian hope. We're going to talk a lot about Hebrew poetry 
that, that, that's their claim. God loves forever. Despite what I'm going through now, God's love somehow matters still and will carry the day. Um, so it's a bold statement, and I'm, I hope we can appreciate that. And we're, so we're going to start with some of the darkness. This is the foil, right, to this statement. Uh, and it's deeply personal for me. Uh, I was with some friends recently. We do a book club. And uh, a couple and a single guy, and the couple are middle-aged, and they've been through a lot, uh, Christians all their lives. And I won't tell their story, but just a lot of hard stuff where they felt like church was saying one thing and secular society was saying another, and neither was very helpful to them. Like one was rah-rah, and one was no, that's terrible. And they were somewhere here in the middle. So anyway, we, we become friends. Uh, one of his coworkers, who's an atheist, so they're struggling with their faith. They're like, oh, we can't make sense of this pain. And then they've got this other friend who's just an atheist. He's like, oh, I, I don't know. It's not a question for me anymore. I deal with that pain by like, yeah, God doesn't exist. You know, where's God in all this? He's not. Um, so we're having this conversation. We always have these conversations around these books. And I'm trying to be a Christian witness uh, to hope. God loves forever. And uh, Marlis, the woman, she's trying to share some hopefulness in the midst of her pain. And she says, yeah, but, you know, I forget what we're talking about. But even the darkness is like light to God, right? So then our friend who's an atheist, he says, yeah, but the darkness is patient. So he's this materialist worldview. Eventually the stars burn out, right? <laughs> and what do you have left but darkness? And so this is like, he's, I don't know if he's satisfied with it, but he's kind of, he's a little bit like, yeah, but the darkness is patient. This is truth. So he's at least satisfied to know what's true. And maybe he's got a little bit of a sense of like, and I'm, I'm a big enough person to face up to it. I don't need these Christian crutches for my suffering. I just face it. The darkness is patient. That's a pretty haunting worldview. The darkness is patient. It'll wait out your light, and eventually things burn out. This, this, this is my friend, my good friend. I want good for him. Um, my sister's kind of in this boat, struggling with her faith. I'm uh, not really sure what to do with God. So my, my, my first atheist friend, he's like, grew up Mormon, rejected all that, and kind of God went with it. Uh, my sister grew up in a very strict Church of Christ environment, and I think she's kind of dealing with a lot of that. I have a lot of hope for all these people, actually, as you'll see, but, <laughs> but for her in particular, she's, she's a wonderful person. But a lot of pain. Uh, she was also like 12 years younger than me, so we kind of grew up a little bit differently. I wasn't there for a lot of her pain. Uh, yeah, I don't want to give you all their names, but just lots of my friends. It's just kind of this circle of either outright atheism or just agnosticism, and we just don't know what to do with God, and there's always the problem of pain and suffering. And so there's this kind of haunting backdrop that I feel, because I have these friends who keep reminding me, <laughs> well, let me forget, and I tend to be very optimistic, like I could be naively optimistic, but I'm trying to do better and be like hopefully realistically optimistic, because we know this God who loves forever. But these friends, they just, you know, they'll keep bringing up these nagging questions they have, and as Christians... We need to have complex enough responses, right? Like real responses to the real pain that people are feeling now and potential pain to come, right? So this is why it's personal to me because it's not just like, let's talk about theology. This is very theological, but uh, it's, theology hits people where they live. I do have one uh, friend, he's, he's an atheist, he, he, he'll listen to my sermons and he'll say this, he'll say, I love the Jesus that you preach. So I like that. But he's got enough church baggage to be like, but I can't, can't go there right now. 
got another friend. Uh, she visited. She's more a friend of my mother-in-law's. She visited us over Christmas. She said, if God were real, which he's not, I would punch him. So the pain she's been through with church and her family and things like this. Um, if you've ever read Kurt Vonnegut, I really like Kurt Vonnegut, but he's such a downer, but he laughs all the way through it. He's like, laughter's how you deal with life. He'll say things like, laughter is the soul seeking relief. He's a great writer, though. But he'll have these little comics because he's laughing about how bleak life is. And say, life is no way to treat an animal. You know, like, this is his response to his terrible suffering through World War II, the firebombing of Dresden. So, this is like all this backdrop that when people like Christians maybe too quickly say, oh yeah, but God loves forever. You know, like, we're speaking into some real hurt. And I just want us to be aware of that before we rush. Um, maybe past that hurt. Because I think the Christian response actually looks it dead in the eye and deals with it. Heals it. So I was going to have my wife sing you these atheist blues, <laughs> this very haunting backdrop, this foil, this counter. We're call I'm calling this this counter narrative. So I love this band Death Cab for Cutie. They're also atheists. Apparently I'm just drawn to this. And it shows up in their lyrics a lot. And this is a cover they did, but they chose to do this song. And I think it says a lot. So I'm not going to sing it, but just listen to these words. It says, I am a man and I am self-aware. And everywhere I go, you're always right there with me. You're like, oh, yeah, it's a Christian song. <laughs> I flirted with you all my life. I even kissed you once or twice. To this day, I swear it was nice, but clearly I was not ready. So when you touched a friend of mine, of mine, I thought that I would lose my mind, but I found out with time that really I was not ready. And if you're listening to this being sung, there's just these, like, the groans of the chorus. Just can't do it for you. <laughs> it's like really just this singing the blues about the nearness of death. Oh, death, you hector me, and you decimate those near to me. You tease me with your sweet relief. You're cruel and you are constant. When my mom was cancer sick, she fought, but then succumbed to it. But you made her beg for it. Lord Jesus, please, I'm ready. Mm, this, I didn't sing this because I'm not a good singer, but I'd also cry. Oh, death, oh, death. Oh, death, really, I'm not ready. No, no, oh, death, oh, death, oh, death, clearly, I'm not ready. This beautiful song, but it's not super hopeful. But God loves forever. So this is like um, atheist lament poetry, things that like speak from the depths of my soul to my experience of the world. Contrasting to that, uh, we have this Hebrew poetry that is going through the same suffering but has a different response. And so I want to look at that. And I want to ask this question. Is our solution to the overwhelming, overwhelming suffering of the world immediately and ultimately, is it enough? Is the Christian witness enough to really speak to this and have some substance to deal with, with this level of hurt? That's a question for the room. And my question that I'd like you uh, to maybe speak back to is when, uh, when everyone saw my title, it was really not meant to be, be this clickbaity title that I think it became, <laughs> but no one that said, hey, I saw your, your, your talk, they said, oh, that title. Everyone mentioned the title. So maybe just give me a little bit of 
like what caught you about that title? Like I, I really hurriedly typed it up like five days before Christmas when they're like, hey, you're past due on your topic. You got to get us something. <laughs> I, I, it means something to me, but I'm curious since everyone's been mentioning, like what does it mean to you or what, what do you hear? So the title, if you don't remember, is God Has a Timeshare in Hell. That's what we're talking about. I thought of, um, even if I had to send into the depths of Sheol, you were there. Yeah. But uh, it may not be his permanent residence, but yeah. that's what I thought. Yeah. That was part of the inspiration for it, so you're right on there. My first reaction was, how did God sit through the meeting? For that long to get a timeshare. <laughs> there were so many timeshare jokes I had to just cut. Yeah, like, we're going to start with this long, like, and I'm going to pretend to pitch you this timeshare. Like, I thought this really would be this hellish experience. That would get us right where I want us to go real fast. Yeah. Complete confusion. What does he mean? Okay. Well, I hope it's clear. By the time we're done. Yeah. I do mean something very specific. And I don't like when people ask you questions that you don't know the answer to, so I'm going to move on. But I was curious, just like, what's the gut reaction to this? Because everybody was mentioning it that shook my hand and said, hey, saw you're teaching a class. What the heck? It's <laughs> the nicest way to say that, I guess. Give me the title. All right, so we've got this counter narrative. Like, this is the narrative that I work with. These are the people that I care about. I want them to know God like I know God. There are a lot of obstacles in the way. A lot of hellish experiences. Uh, so the Hebrew identity is shaped by these, these two things at least. They're heirs of the biggest promise possible. You will be a blessing to the nations, right? This is all the way back to Abraham. This is where we come from. This is our, our identity. We are meant to bless the nations, the world. Uh, so they carry this specialness. We are unique. And they, they kind of always have that, right? For better or worse, whether it's a point of pride, or like it's just in their mental psyche. It's, it's like just, it's in the culture of who they are. And that's a good thing. Uh, but they, it's always paired with these really hellish experiences, right? The slavery in Egypt, their own unfaithfulness, just the brutality of their times is coming out all around them. And whether it's individuals or nationally, they are just, they're constantly like, we are God's people. Um, but it's kind of like the, the scene from Fiddler on the Roof where Tevya is like, he, he knows destruction is coming. He's finally got word. I forget how he learns this, but destruction's on the way. And Tevya is talking to God, and he's like, I know we're your chosen people, um, but maybe once in a while could you choose someone else, right? Um, because this is just their history. They're constantly going through, sometimes their own fault, sometimes not, these really awful times. But the world, it's just the reality of the world we live in. But they lament so differently than Death Cab for Cutie does. And I find this fascinating. The things they say, they don't know Jesus yet, right? But these are the things that they're willing to say about God. So in Lamentations, I think I'm going to run through these quickly. Lamentations 3, 22 through 24. And what I love, too, about this, so like we start with this kind of like the poetry of the world that has no hope. Because I think poetry expands our concepts of things. It, it kind of utters things that are truer than we even know. It's like, this is my raw heart for you. And this is that with God. And so in Lamentations, uh, Lamentations is, is an entire book of poems, right? And so I, I'm, 
we might just write off poetry. It's like, well, it's just poetic license type language, but I want us to take it more seriously. I think it's like, this is saying something so true, we're having trouble putting it into words, but every so often we say something and it's just like that little phrase says something so true, we will say it for thousands of years. And so Lamentations says it like this, but this, and this is in the midst of utter destruction of Jerusalem, right? This I call to mind and therefore I have hope in verse 21. They've already lost. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. Who, who responds to total, utter destruction that way and utters these words of hope? When it's not on the horizon even. Like, it, it's way down the line. It's not for you. It's for maybe your people, eventually. Psalm 139, it's referenced earlier. Thank you for your biblical literacy. That's good. Psalm 139. So I think this is like part of the answer. Like, how does he have this kind of hope? What's his worldview? Oh, Lord, you've searched me. You've known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I can't contain it. Uh, I cannot attain it. I, I, I think of that prayer that Paul's going to pray later, right? An, another Hebrew poet when in the first century. And he's going to say, I pray that your hearts and minds could expand to fathom the depth of God's love, the height and the depth and the width, right? This guy's saying, I can't do it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Uh, thank you, that, that was the quote. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. And we could go on. God knows him from the inside out. And there is nowhere to go, because this is the idea of omnipresence, right? Taken seriously. That you're alone and apart from God. This is where I'm struggling. Like, there's a lot of, um, like, metaphysical claims I want to make about. So, like, in my mind, and I think in this Hebrew understanding of things, even though I think we might communicate it differently, living in different times, like, it is not possible for a human being to exist apart from God. Because for God to be aware of you demands his presence with you. And as Paul's going to say in a little bit, we don't live and move and breathe except that God sustains us. So the separation that we often think about between us and God, I think is different than we often think about it. Um, God's awareness of us, which is constant, demands his presence. He's not disconnected. And so at least, that, that, that at the very least, I think demands a very empathetic, I feel sorry for you, response. Like a parent watching a suffering child. But I think it goes further than that. I think he actually is the breath of life in us and therefore feels with us everyone who's ever lived. He knows from the inside out our experience. We're still our own people. But we are intimately knitted to God's self. And I think it's necessarily, so again, this is where I like the conclusions, there's arguments, right? It's necessarily so that we exist, that God is with us now in this moment.
and, and experiencing this life with us from the inside out. So we can talk more about that if you want. Uh, Psalm 22, uh, this is another psalm of protest. That this is, not only is this not the way it should be, but even as I'm experiencing it, um, it's better than I think, and it, and it will be made better. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? These are the words that Jesus will pick up and say on the cross. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? But he turns around, and he doesn't quote these from the cross, but I think he has to have them in mind when you get to verse 24. He says, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from me. He heard the one who cried to him. So I guess with my understanding of God, he doesn't actually turn the face. Oh, this is the worst moment in history, and I'm, I've got to run and be away from it because I'm God and I can't handle it, I guess. It's too dark, even for God. It's like, no, God the Father is with Christ the Son, suffering intimately. And even though Jesus is in this blinding pain to where it's like all circumstances and evidence to the contrary says, this is the moment God finally has to step away. The psalm of hope says, no, he will not turn his face. That's not, that's not a possibility for God, because God loves forever. This is why I think it's a bolder claim. When you say a true thing, it's actually truer than you know sometimes. And this is why I think our Christian response actually is more powerful than it's been allowed to be to the suffering of the world. Because it's even truer than we believe. It's more hopeful than I have been uh, taught in many ways. So this lack of felt presence or awareness, you're like, I don't feel God today. And it's like, okay, but I'm still here. <laughs> I didn't suddenly wander off because you don't feel me today. He's not that, uh, it's not that fragile of a relationship, our existence with God. So in Acts 17, we get to this idea that Paul picks up, and I think he runs, maybe, maybe yeah, anyway, my, I counter-argue myself. Like, you, would, you, you might say to yourself, I think you're building a lot on this. But I think Paul builds a lot on it because he, we're going to see in Colossians, he goes a long way. He borrows from a pagan poet, and he says, don't your own pagans say this kind of thing? Acts 17. I think I marked this. Acts 17. In him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Like These are pagan people. They don't know God. We know God. They've got this pretty keen insight says, oh, people, humans, we are God's children. We don't exist apart from God. So both those quotes Paul takes, and he says, there's something more true about this than you realize when you said it. You look at Colossians in this Christ hymn. Sorry, I'm running through these fast, I know, but I'm trying to get to where I want you to speak back to this. Um, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. And I'm using this because I'm trying to lean into the poetry theme here, right? Here's this Christ hymn. This is the poetry of Christian hope. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether uh, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things. He's uh, in him all things hold together. That would include me, I think. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell that through him he could reconcile to himself everything whether on heaven 
for earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. You can throw in John, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Nothing has come into being except by him. And he keeps it in being. He sustains it. And he's not keeping it in existence, spinning from afar, right? So, my atheist friends struggle with all this so far, right? Oh, they're suffering. God's, where's God? Uh, this is where my Christian friends, I think, start to struggle. So, <laughs> if you've hung in there with me so far, thank you. Hang in a little more. God has a timeshare in hell. What am I talking about? I think that saying, uh, to me, hints at the immediate and ultimate solution to suffering. It, it changes the way you view everything. Salvation, the cross, what God is doing in the world, why we have the experience we're having. Because hovering, hovering over suffering, which is a problem, right? Oh, the needless suffering. Egregious suffering. Innocent people suffering. And never hearing the name Jesus. You know, you can make it as dark as you want to go because it's been that dark. Um, hovering over that is this eternal suffering, right? Because the Christian story has been like, oh, and by the way, God loves forever, except all the people that don't love him back, <laughs> right? That's a very simplified version, but I think you get the point. God is faithful forever. He's got this hesed love, and no matter how unfaithful you are, he'll always come back around. He's never left, right? Like I've already said. But then the the exclamation point, the, the climax of our story is, oh, and by the way, at the end of the story, there's this great separation. And I just, this is the question, is our good news sufficient for worst case scenarios? For everybody, and not just for me. Well, I got the good news. I figured it out in time. Tough for those who didn't. So I guess we've got to be really motivated to get out there and preach the good news, which we should be. But I don't know if that story is actually just sufficient for some, when you think about the implications of suffering was bad enough, now there's ultimate suffering. So here's what I think about that. What if salvation in this sense is the disillusion of the illusion that I was ever separated from God in the first place? Since I don't exist unless God is like, I'm here with you, causing you to exist. When you think about questions like, why are we even here in the first place? And the answer is something like, because God loves and he pours out his love, he wants to share it. I think that's a good answer. But is it also enough, like it's good enough for a cause, is it good enough for a solution? Is it big enough? to solve the problem that it then creates, that some people are not feeling that love, some people are not experiencing that intimacy with God. I think it is, actually. So we have this, um, the Occam's razor idea, like it's the simplest solution, right, that answers the problem. Are we out of time already? Oh, so, not. yeah, keep going. Okay. Man, you just like made me panic. I was like, <laughs> So Occam's razor is like the simplest solution to the problem, right? But it's, it's not quite that simple. It's the simplest solution that's complex enough for the problem it needs to solve. And I feel like the problem of suffering and ultimate suffering 
is bigger than the way I've thought about God and love most of my life. So this is basically what I want to say to you, and there's lots of different arguments that tumble out of this, but I, I don't think hell is the absence of God. I think that um, hell is the absence of a lot of goodness and probably the rejection of God. But if we really believe that God is a God who loves forever, and he's got this covenantal faithful love with people, his people, then that changes what we think about. What is the purpose of hell anyway? He disciplines those he loves. So maybe this is a good place to just pause. Because now I need to really hear what you're thinking. God has a timeshare in hell. So what, what do you think about this idea of God and hell being together? Ever. It's hard, maybe. So I studied Dante's Inferno this last year. I, I taught it to ninth and 10th grade students and read a lot of commentaries about it. And what I took away from that pretty in-depth reading is um, God ultimately gives us what we want. Yeah. And so like in the Inferno, the people that were very vain in life, like what they get to do is they get to wear around these beautiful coats that are pretty on the outside and lead on the inside and it's just literally killing them. But it's like whatever you chased in life, God lets you chase forever. So I... C.S. Lewis makes a similar kind of argument, right, in the uh, divorce, great, great divorce. He's got this character. She was a grumbler in life. I think she was a grumbler, right? And um, so, of course, she's a grumbler in the afterlife, just but worse. And I think the claim is uh, we become kind of what we love, right? And so she basically turns from human into basically this walking grumble. <laughs> Um, she becomes this thing, and God gives us what we want. Yeah, fine so far. Um, how sustainable is that forever, though? Like, you're talking about, like, 70 years of suffering is pretty tough. <laughs> 70,000 years, a little tougher. So, like, I'm becoming this worse thing than God for eternity. Like, how sustainable is that? Like, eventually, like, just kill me now, right? <laughs> and he's like, but I gave you what you wanted. Obviously, they didn't want that, they chased after something that wasn't God and good. Maybe it looked good, right? But it wasn't that. They didn't want that. They didn't know what they were choosing. It's like, I think of Jesus saying, God, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. As they're nailing him to a cross, they, they pretty much know what they're doing. But they don't really. And so my, kind of my response to that is, like, I think God does give you what you want. But I don't think it's sustainable forever. It just doesn't, like, it's just, it's amplifying forever, like, pain, suffering, worse and worse. And, like, at some point, so pain blinds, I think pain might have been blinding for Jesus on the cross. Like, my God, where are you? But I remember this hope. You have not turned your face. So I think maybe Jesus on the cross doesn't feel God's presence like he has in the past, even though God is there. But pain can also wake you up. <laughs> pain can be like, I don't, this is not the road I want to be on. And I guess it doesn't make sense to me that the wake-up would be when it was too late. It's like, oh, man, you made a bad choice, didn't you? That really sucks. Also, it's going to get worse. 
Um, yeah, that doesn't, that just doesn't feel like justice. Uh, there's a line in the Kingdom of Heaven movie where the, the king is dying of leprosy, the, the Christian king. They're fighting over Jerusalem. And uh, the, the Muslims and the Christians are fighting, and uh, the Christian king is dying of leprosy. He's very young. He's like in his 20s. He says, if the Muslims are right, there's a far worse torture coming for me in the next life. And, uh, and he says, if that's true, then I say that's unfair. And I can't argue with that. That seems pretty unfair. Like this, is, this life is hard and it's painful, and it teaches us stuff. Like, pain is meant to teach. Don't touch hot stoves. So I, I guess my, my long response to that is, like, I can't imagine God being like, but you wanted to touch it. <laughs> so you're going to keep touching it. Because I think the point of pain is to deter. And the point of our... Yeah, of, of anything like that. So he'll, he'll give you the freedom. Um, so Kierkegaard says, and I haven't read Kierkegaard, that makes me sound very pretentious. I've, I've listened to somebody who's talked about Kierkegaard. But he says we need three things for purpose. We need God, because you have to have moral compass. Uh, we need free will, because we have to have personal responsibility. So this is not like God just saves anybody no matter what they did. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, you have to have moral compass. You have to have personal responsibility, free will for your actions. You, 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 we face up to what we do. Christians, I love what you say, Lance. You have to crucify something. And I think Christians paint this terrible picture where when we talk about grace, we kind of paint it in a not great light because it's like, you're off scot-free. This guy who did the same thing but didn't ask for forgiveness isn't, right? It's just like this weird thing. But it's like, no, Christians, you have to own your stuff. You, you get forgiveness, but we got to make amends where possible. And, and Jesus is the great amender. He's the redeemer that redeems all. So there, it's possible. So I guess like this, this grand, okay, so what? Sorry, I didn't finish Kierkegaard. Um, moral compass, free will. You got to face up to your stuff. You don't get off the hook just because you said you're sorry. What's the last thing he says you need? Oh, you got to have time. You got to have a, another life. You got to have it. You have to have a belief that there's life. And there's coherent life coming. Like, I learned some things in this life. I didn't learn everything I needed to know, and suddenly God's like, you're done. 70 years was enough. I'm going to jump you ahead because you made enough good choice. He's like, no, we grow forever with God. We're always learning with God. So it's much more dynamic. It's not this dynamic now, static then. It's forever dynamic. Forever growing and learning with God. Forever getting better and better. Cause like, and it's heightened both directions. I think it does get worse and worse. Like, there is hell. And it gets worse. It gets bad. Get so bad, people are like I can't live like this anymore. So where do you go then? What's you look for hope? You look for good. You you don't identify with the evil that's all around you, and it's worse than it was here. Because all the Jesuses and the prophets, they're not there. They're they're off somewhere else, right? Except God's presence. I'm not contradicting myself. But it's just worse though. It's like all all those people, all those churchgoers, like who were like the light in the world. They're off growing somewhere else now, and it's just dark and bleak. I think hell is real. I just don't think it makes sense that it lasts forever. Um, so this is where, yeah, my Christian friends are just like, oh, we liked you until now. <laughs> <laughs> are you even a Christian anymore? <clears throat> uh, what, what thoughts? I, I think one of the things for me that it gets us in trouble is, and again, I'm going to say something that 
probably doesn't make sense, but is our evangelistic emphasis? Like somebody is where they are in, 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 in suffering, you know, and, and we want to say this thing and get them out as quickly as possible. Or we want to, we want to, yeah, we want to rescue them. And I mean, there's just, you, you're not going to talk somebody out of it. You're not going to, um, about the only thing you can do is enter it. Hmm. And share it. I think that's what God does. That's what God does. Yeah. He, 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 and, and so the, the kind of mindset of yeah, we got to get these right. You got to get these people right. You know, as, you know, in case something worse happens. You know, or something. That just doesn't work. Uh, it, it, and it doesn't seem to match who God is. And well, and, and instead, what the the image as the body of Christ is, we just bear their suffering. I think I think sometimes people like Jesus is the only one that does it. But no, he calls us to actually bear their suffering. And fill up what's lacking in the suffering of Christ, maybe. Do it. Fill up what's lacking in the suffering of Christ, maybe yeah. that idea goes out of I'm just gonna I'm gonna carry that with and even for them for a while. Um I, I don't know, as I'm I'm struggling too. where you know, there's a message of hope that I want to give. But when I give it in such a way as I want to fix this, no, that doesn't. It doesn't produce. It, it and it doesn't seem to. It gets me to a place where I'm not acting as compassionately and and incarnationally as God did. Yeah. So, if I think I think I'm understanding you, but if not, forgive me for this misunderstanding. I, my my evangelism shouldn't be motivated by helping make me feel better about your situation, something like that. But we should be evangelistic because like, yeah. this doesn't have to go on forever. Like it can be over as soon as we do better. <laughs> like as soon as we lean in, right? We are growing forever, so there's always gonna be stuff to learn. Um, but it, it doesn't like take away my evangelistic zeal to be like, well, we can do better now. Like Jesus is like, you can live this Sermon of the Mount stuff now. You can bring heaven into now. Like there's no like, it's, it's not this like, well, if, if everyone's just eventually going to get it right anyway, then I guess it doesn't matter. It's like, no, like that's unneeded suffering, needless, needless suffering. Like, we're not about that. <laughs> we're about being Christ and suffering for the right reasons. Yeah, bearing up with people's suffering. Um, so I don't, I don't I think that was exactly the point you're making, but I think a lot of times the thing I get is like, well, then why even preach to anybody? Right. God's just going to love them anyway. It's like, because you can be the presence of Christ for them now <laughs> in a world that's super dark. Yeah. I have a question. Yeah. Um, what do you think hell is for? It's redemptive. Redemptive? Yeah. I think of it more as a trial. Uh, I think that could be the same thing, but do you want to say more? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, sure. I, I, I guess I'm saying I don't think it's punitive mm-hmm. in the sense that it is um, God just got so angry one day, he finally had enough. Mm-hmm. He will never look at you again. Mm-hmm. I think that's, a, I guess that's another this, so this, this hell is the absence of God, Ted Chang, I think he's an atheist, he wrote this short story. And he's kind of, if he's a Christian, he's critiquing his own beliefs. I think he's an atheist saying, this is unacceptable, <laughs> the view of God that you have. God in the story is very aloof and off, not like the hiddenness I think that we find in, in God our Father. Um, he's like personality-less. 
saves very arbitrarily. And hell is just literally, in the story, the absence of God. People are living their life as if God didn't exist ever. And kind of the kicker is, um, at the end, one guy finally falls in love with God who didn't want to love God because he hates God for all the evil God has caused in his life. And uh, he goes to hell anyway. And so he's the only person in hell, as, in the, as depicted in the story, who's aware of God and actually loves God. But God is not aware of him because God's like off in heaven. And so there's like this chasm there. God isn't aware of hell anymore. He somehow allowed himself to forget all the people in hell. Doesn't care about them. And so this guy is like ultimately tortured because he loves God. And it's unrequited love on his part, not God's part. Um, and so he's just tortured forever. Uh, knowing that he'll... And he can't not love God. <laughs> so that's his torture. Uh, so, but so the title of that so is like, Hell is the Absence of God is the title of that story. Um, and I just want to push back on that. And I want to say, God tells us in Scripture, he's with us in our suffering now. And it just doesn't make sense for me, for the suffering to get worse, and him to be like, but this is where I bow out, guys. So do you ascribe then to kind of the pruning view of hell and kind of the Rob Bell thing about the gates of hell are not closed? Yeah, so uh, the other kind of, I guess something like that, maybe. Um, You know, there's there's this passage in Corinthians about the people who are saved, and like they've got all their, they're so proud of themselves for their Christian work, and uh, but most of it burns up. Mm. I kind of think of hell like that. It's like, um, it's like, but, but nevertheless they are saved, it says. Um, and so I think hell is kind of like that. It's like we were on this path, we thought we were on the best, but most people are on the, the best path. They're, they think they're doing the best. You know, there are some people that are aware, like I'm making bad choices, but I'm, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, or something like that. But, um, yeah, long story short, yeah, I, I think it's something like that. So it's redemptive. It's like you learn as you go. Uh, and you learn that it's, it's like, we know the games the world plays, taking advantage, all the worst, manipulation, taking advantage. I think hell will be something like that, like, but worse, because it's all the people who are good at that stuff. <laughs> like, all the manipulators are together manipulating each other. And so eventually, maybe top down, uh, the way one of my friends describes it, because the people at the top, they're going to they're gonna last longest because they're getting the best out of it. But the people at the bottom who are suffering the most are going to be like, this just doesn't work, guys. You know, they're not as good at manipulation. <laughs> so I think it is like this, char- it's a character. It's being transformed into the image of Christ. And so I guess one way to think about it is this, and I think we're about out of time. Oh, also, I've got these cards because I know this is like such a huge conversation <laughs> that we don't have time to talk about it all. I would love to talk with you all more about this. It's not like a hit and run conversation. So I've got these cards if you want to talk with me about it. Uh, no pressure. Um, you have my contact information. Don't send me mean things, um, but I'd love to talk to you. Um, so, but, but David Bentley Hart, Eastern Orthodox Christian writer, talks about it like this. So like God, at the beginning of time, decides. He like willingly, free will, creates out of love, right? It's a natural thing to do. Um, but David Bentley Hart uses this analogy. He says, you know, when you're at the, the gambling table, because kind of the, the story as it is, or as I've understood it, is like, God sends us out in free will, and then some people choose him. And he knows that's going to be the case, right? Some people will choose him, and some people won't. That is reality. I'm not arguing with that. But he's saying God is basically throwing the dice, knowing, gambling with your souls, basically. Some of you will choose, and some of you will not. So to throw the dice is to be okay with the outcome. It's to, it's to say, I am okay with however many go to hell. That's just okay. I am, I, I've decided that whatever comes, it's, it, I'm all right with that. So 
So I think God does throw the dice, but in a sense, they're loaded. Um, because he is okay with us. We have to have free will. It, it's not coerced. It's never coerced with God. Um, but he knows that he set up the parameters as such. He, he's never going to be away from you. He can always help you as long as you're willing to be helped. And so I guess the, the argument on the other side could be that people get so malformed, they're so caught up in themselves, they just can't find their way back to the light of day. And my response to that is just something like, I don't think God has seen a problem that big yet. I don't think God has met that his match. He can play this game way better than we can. And he will do what it takes. As long as it takes. So we're all going this way. <laughs> so that, that, that would be my really short, long response to that. I think you asked me a question. I'm looking at you. So. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. That, that is all the time we have. So yeah, I, I meant what I said. God has a timeshare in hell. <laughs> I think... Um, God, we don't talk about God in worthy enough ways. He's far better than we've believed. The timeshare, hell has a shelf life, and it's indefinite. It's as long as it takes. And hell is hell. It's real. <laughs> it is hellish. It is not a place you want to be. If you think this world is bad. Yeah, there's the Peter where he went and preached. There's a really great verse in there where it says he preached to them, right? You read, I forget, it's like four or seven somewhere. Anyway, Jesus goes to hell and he preaches. And he could be rubbing it in. It's like his victory march. You guys should have known better. <laughs> but there's like a verse a little bit further in the chapter. And it says, uh, and he, he like preaches to them and he judges them. So not that so they would be, they, because they'd already been judged by human standards. But now they could be judged by a spiritual standard. And there's a way to read that where it's like, you thought you were a bad person, you're an even worse soul. But I think the way to read it is like, you were judged as a human. What do humans say? Unworthy. We know who's good and who's not. You know, like it, so it's like human standards imperfect, but the spiritual standard is perfect. Now I'm going to judge you the correct way. And you'll get exactly what you need from God. See, I think God just he gives us what we need, as well as what we want. But I think they can be both. <laughs> Sometimes giving us what we want is what we need because we run that road long enough. And if you've been in uh, like uh, recovery groups and stuff, you've got to hit bottom sometime or you die. But again, we've got time. <laughs> so maybe you will die. But that doesn't have to be the end because like, why would God arbitrarily say, this is the line? Like, He's got all the time in eternity. He's got all the time he needs. And he's God. And he is love. Perfect love working out perfectly. So I guess I just, I can't see a way back, back to where I've been in the past. And I'm, I love talking about it. So, because I just think it's a better hope. But we're out of time and I'm, I've kept you way too long. So um, thank you. I hope you're not super disappointed.